Good morning, gentlemen. Welcome to the men's fellowship breakfast on this Friday morning. I am grateful to be with you again. Of course, missing you, but grateful that we can be in the Word together. And it certainly has been an interesting week. I know that around my household, while children's schooling has started up again, we are certainly feeling the, the pressure and the crunch of what that means. But the Lord is good and He is faithful. And we are even finding different ways to spend our time. So just a few nights ago, my wife, for the very first time, cut each of our boys' hair. And she used some clippers. And in fact, I put a picture in the slides, if you want to check those out at some point, of our youngest, Spencer, who's in the chair in our kitchen. And my wife has the clippers poised, about ready to start his haircut. And he's having this look on his face like, is this really... Is this really going to go well? Uh, it's, it's a good picture, so feel free to check that out. But uh, while we are not together in the same place, we are unified and we have unity in Christ. So I am grateful that we can learn from God's Word together. And I would just love to start our time in a word of prayer, and then we will get rolling with Mark chapter 14. So please pray with me. Father, thank you that you are with us no matter when and where we are watching this, no matter uh, when and how we are learning from your scripture, we know that you are present. And our prayer is that you will teach us new and important truths that we need to apply to be your people during this time, so that you might be glorified, so that your kingdom might move forward. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Well, just by way of introduction, um, again, if you would like to follow along the slides, they help provide some of the text of what I'll be sharing with you this morning. We have been learning from the Gospel of Mark that the Gospel of Mark shows us how to serve and suffer like our Savior. Hopefully by now you have that at least memorized in the back of your mind. And as we have learned, chapters 1 through 11 of the Gospel of Mark show us that Jesus came to serve, and that's his, the, really the, the three years or so of his earthly ministry. And then we have chapters 12 through 16, which take us to the end of the Gospel of Mark, and they show us how Jesus came to suffer. And we will be really hitting, um, we'll be on the doorstep of that suffering in Mark chapter 14 this week. But the key verse that many have identified is Mark 10, 45, which reads, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So that is the verse that demonstrates Jesus came to serve and suffer. And he calls us to follow as his disciples in his footsteps. So we will be in Lesson 27 today. I'm so grateful knowing that we have had all of these lessons over all of these months and that we can continue our study. But our 27th lesson is entitled Plotting and Pouring at the Passover. And this will be a look at Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 25. So just to give you context for what's happening here, most of the action that we read will happen on Wednesday, April the 1st of A.D. 33, as well as Thursday, April the 2nd of A.D. 33. Now, a segment, it's interesting, we'll get to a segment that actually took place six days before 
but Mark includes here in his chronology of the events of Jesus. And I'll explain why that is. Uh, but, um, but by and large, we are getting very close to, uh, to the crucifixion of Christ. So a day or two before that crucifixion happens. And Mark really takes this action much more slowly. As we've said, he slows it way down so that we might really focus on the passion and the suffering of Christ. And last week we finished Mark 13, which was the Olivet Discourse of Jesus, the longest discourse or the longest sermon and teaching in the Gospel of Mark from Christ. And uh, I wanted us to come away with the reality that the Son of Man is coming And that's good news, but we are told by Jesus that we are not to try to predict his coming. We are simply to be prepared. So don't predict it because no one knows when it's going to happen, but be prepared because you'll know when he's coming soon. And I liken it now as I think about it to when our, our daughter was on the verge of being born. We didn't know when she was going to be born. We didn't know when my wife was going to go into active labor and when she was going to give birth to our daughter. Um, this is back in 2005. But by gosh, by golly, we were prepared. <laughs> we had read everything, every book to know what to bring to the hospital. Um, so we were ready. So that that uh, morning when my wife said, I think it's time to go to the hospital, we were ready to go. It may have actually been in the afternoon now that I think about it. After four children, it's hard to keep track. But one, but one way or the other, we were ready. We were prepared. We didn't try to predict, but we were just prepared. And so that's how we should approach the coming of the Son of Man. And it's a great message of hope. I think about 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, where the Apostle Paul says, he knows that awaiting him is a crown of righteousness And he says that that same crown is awaiting not just him, but all of those who have loved his, that is Christ's, appearing. And so we really, um, I love that that language is very special and intimate. I hope that you love the reality of Christ's appearing and look forward to it with anticipation just like I do. So we move from Mark chapter 13 now this week to Mark chapter 14. And over Mark chapters 14 and 15, we are really going to see the the climactic moment of what Mark has really been preparing his readers for in the life and ministry of Jesus, who has come to serve and to suffer. And we will see uh, the climactic moment of Jesus and his uh, enemies. We will see that happening as Jesus is um, opposed by the religious leaders. We'll also see that climactic moment of Jesus and his followers, his friends, and their selfishness and their confusion. We'll see that in Mark chapters 14 and 15, as well as the ultimate climactic moment of his suffering, which is his death on the cross for our sins. So uh, we dive into that here in Mark chapter 14. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 25. And uh, a portion, a good portion of the action that we that we see here in the beginning of our passage today is taking place in the small community of Bethany, which again, as we've been talking about, is to the east of Jerusalem, outside of the Temple Gate, across the Kidron Valley, up uh, over the Mount of Olives, and to the east of that is where we'll be reading some of what happens today. The rest of what we'll read today happens during in the city of Jerusalem itself. So again, True to form, there is a map in the slides if you want to check it out. 
So uh, what we'll do is we'll look at two parts today of Mark chapter 14, 1 through 25. The first part is uh, two plots and one pouring, and that's the first 11 verses. And then verses 12 through 25 happens to be uh, preparation, prediction, and institution. And that's going to be uh, the Passover meal and the Lord's Supper that we'll look at in just a bit. So first we have uh, two plots and one pouring, and that is Mark 14, verses 1 through 11, which I will read now. So follow along in your Bibles, please, and we'll start at the beginning of Mark 14. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Verse 3, and while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could do. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, in the whole world, What she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Very, uh, very interesting verses here. Um, Interesting as Mark puts these verses together given the events of history around the time of Jesus and his life right now. Just to set up, these first two verses are really setting the context for what's going on here. As the passage tells us, uh, two days before the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Just to give you an opportunity to think this through, uh, this was a very important time of celebration in the Jewish faith, in the Jewish city of Jerusalem. The... um, The Passover was the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And if you want more information on the Passover itself, you simply need to turn to Exodus chapter 12, where the event of the Passover happens, and then the description of what that event will be remembered and how it will be remembered by God's people. That all takes place in Exodus chapter 12. And verses 43 through 51 specifically tell God's people, this is how you are to remember and celebrate this event every year to remind you of my redemption and my faithfulness to you as a nation. Um, We also can find information about the Passover from Deuteronomy chapter 16 verses 1 through 8. Now, the Passover itself was celebrated on, in the Jewish month of Nisan on the 14th day. And that's, that's what we know from the scriptures and what we know from history. Now, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, which followed the Passover, 
We find information on that in Exodus chapter 13, verses 3 through 16, as God tells his people, this will be a feast that you celebrate. Uh, Again, commemorating my faithfulness to you and my redemption of taking you out of the land of Egypt and bringing you out of the land of slavery. And the feast of, or the feast of the unleavened bread was an eight-day feast that would take place starting on the fifteenth day of the month of Nisan, the day after the Passover was celebrated. And this again was one of the major celebrations and holidays of the Jewish people. If you can imagine, it's sort of like in the United States, we have July 4th, where everyone's attending a fireworks ceremony, everyone's attending a parade. Memorial Day is very similar. Maybe St. Patrick's Day because of all the parades and celebrations. But, but if you could imagine all that wrapped into one, in one location, because the Passover was required to be celebrated in Jerusalem. So you had pilgrims who were coming from many miles away to come into the city. The estimates of how many people were in the city during this Passover time were anywhere from 50,000 to 250,000 people, which might not sound like a lot to us today in our American landscape, but back then in the ancient world, that was a very large amount of people to be in a small and enclosed city space. So this is why the, uh, the chief priests were a little careful. They were concerned that if they tried to arrest Jesus out in public, that there would be, because of his popularity, misunderstanding and rioting, and that would then require the Romans to step in, and that would foil their plan and, and disturb the peace. So uh, certainly they were diabolical and method, uh, methodical, and they were also very careful about the timing of when this would happen. Now, interestingly, after getting this overview of what's happening and when this is happening, Mark then inserts an account from Jesus' previous uh, week that actually happened six days before this. But Mark decides to place this event here in between verses 1 and 2 and verses 10 and 11. And we'll explain that in just a little bit. But Uh, What we find Jesus is in Bethany, which again is to the east of Jerusalem. It's the hometown of Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus. So Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. And we find from John chapter 12 that this event actually happened six days before Mark puts it in his gospel. And there's a reason why Mark put it where he did. Um, But Jesus is in this town of Bethany, reclining at the home of a man named Simon the leper. Now, According to Exodus, or sorry, Leviticus chapter 13, leprosy, which was a disease in the Old Testament times, was, um, was a condition that prevented you from being ceremonially clean. So lepers were not only diseased, but deemed as unclean and unfit to come before God and worship in the temple. And laws actually prevented them from coming into the temple if they had leprosy. But yet here we see Jesus, no surprise, ministering to the least and the last of his community, and associating with someone by eating at their table. In our day and age, if someone has you over for dinner, that's an invitation to say, please come into my my sphere of influence, come into my my family of influence, so to speak. Um, And in the ancient world, it was even more so that way. If you ate with someone, you were associating with that person. Nowadays, in certain contexts, you might be forced to eat a meal with someone maybe at a particular function that you don't know or that you don't care for. But in this day and age, Jesus intentionally 
ate with people that he loved, and that meant that he was associating himself with them. And we have this woman, the text says. We don't have a name here in the Gospel of Mark, but we know from the Gospel of John, chapter 12, that this is Mary, Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And it's no surprise that we find Mary taking part in an activity that puts her once again at the feet of Jesus. When we see Mary in the Gospels, she is constantly at the feet of Jesus, expressing devotion and adoration and humility before the Savior, which is a good example for us to consider as well. And what she does is she takes this bottle, this alabaster flask, that said, and, and Mark tells us it is uh, full of ointment of pure nard. Now, the word ointment there, the Greek word there, muron, is where we get our English word myrrh. So it was a very rich uh, spiced perfume that came right from the very root of the spikenard plant, which is a plant, uh, a perfume plant that has uh, aromatic oils from northern India. And this was not a cheap endeavor on Mary's part. It says she broke the bottle, and there are pictures of what an alabaster flask might look like in the slides if you want to check that out. And by breaking the bottle, that meant that the ointment would spoil if it wasn't used. And so she ended up, it says, um, pouring it over his head. And then in other accounts of this, uh, we find that she even pours it on his feet and wipes his feet with her hair. Um, but this was, like I said, this was expensive to do. In fact, some of the disciples uh, voiced their, their uh, indignance at this. As um, it says, uh, some who were there said to themselves indignantly. This is the same word that's used in Mark 10, 14, when the disciples try to send children away. And the text says Jesus became indignant, that is insistent or um, upset, and um, told his disciples, no, no, let the little children come to me. But these disciples are indignant, and they say, this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. 300 denarii, a denarius was about a day's wage for a, a regular laborer in that day. So essentially, this ointment could have been the same value as an annual salary for the average worker in the day. You can think about your annual salary, or if you're retired at one point, what you made for your annual salary. And you can think about it, an item or an object that, that costs that much. Maybe it's a car. Maybe, maybe it's a house somewhere. And she gave that. She poured that. She lavished that upon Jesus Christ. And yet she was scolded by some of the disciples. We understand from the Gospel of John chapter 12 that Judas was the lead voice in this indignance against her. In fact, in John chapter 12 verses 4 and 5, we read of a similar account here. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? You see, Judas was the one, we're also told, who handled the disciples' financial dealings. He had the money bags, and he would use the money that was given to the disciples to then pay for their needs. Now, you might say to yourself, well, who would put Judas in charge of the finances of the disciples, um, knowing what he would do? Well, yes, Jesus did that, 
Um, that, that's, that's the way it worked out. And Judas was obviously not very honest. Judas was very motivated by money, as we'll see in a little bit. And so Judas was extremely disappointed by the woman's decision to waste what he thought could have been used for something more useful. But he was also disappointed, I think, in Jesus' response to the woman. Now, it was typical during the Passover that Jews would give a financial offering or gift to help the poor. But Jesus actually says that there is something much more important happening here. And he, he says, don't trouble her. She has actually done not a good thing and a beautiful thing. He says, you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me, indicating that he was going to go and, and be killed. And in fact, she says, she has even anointed my body for burial beforehand. So Jesus is foreshadowing his death in this, this great moment, this great act of devotion by Mary. Um, and so uh, she expresses this great love, this great extravagant love. And her act of devotion is one that Jesus says will be remembered and told about wherever the gospel is preached, all over the whole world. In fact, Jesus' words became true and are true because to this very day, I am now telling you about Mary's act of devotion that Jesus promised others would tell wherever the gospel is preached. So we see that as being fulfilled even in this very moment, in this very day, as the words of Mark are still preached and taught today in churches and around the world. So, um, so that's an amazing act of devotion by Mary. And yet we find what happens next is a stark contrast. Verse 10, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him. And when they heard it, they were glad. The word there could be translated rejoiced. Finally, their plot to, to capture Jesus has now been brought to their very doorstep. One of Jesus' disciples shows up and says, I can give him into your hands. I can betray him. Another translation could be hand him over, give him over. They thought that their day had been made. And so they rejoiced and they looked for the opportunity for Judas to bring Jesus to them or bring them to Jesus as would happen. And so we think about this incredible contrast and we see why Mark would put this event that happened six days before in between the events that happened just a few days before Jesus, in fact, the very day before Jesus was crucified. Because Mark wanted to show the plotting and the diabolical um, treachery of the chief priests and Judas, but in between you had this incredible act of devotion of this woman Mary showing and heightening the contrast of those responses to Jesus. And it made me wonder, um, how, how am I responding to Jesus in any given moment? Am I, am I forsaking him and trying to put him in a different place than he belongs, like the chief priests? Or am I focusing on something that's um, not as important, and it's focused on material and financial gain, like Judas? Or am I focused on giving all that I can to Jesus Christ, just like Mary did? And so it's no surprise that we should see one of the greatest acts of devotion sandwiched between two acts of treachery and betrayal, um, because Jesus indeed came to serve and suffer for us. So we move then to the next section, which is verses 12 through 25, preparation, prediction, and institution. Read with me, verses 12 through 25. 
And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you go to, uh, where will you have us go to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city, that is to Jerusalem, and found it just as he told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, verse 17 says, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, uh, and to say to him one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them. And he said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink it again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So we have some very interesting um, historical facts and happenings going on in this time of Jesus um, this is the time of preparation when the Passover was being prepared for. This was the 14th day of the month of Nisan. Um, and this was the very first day, the beginning of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, as we have talked about. Now, the Passover, as we've mentioned, was the annual reminder, looking back to Exodus chapter 14, of God's redemption and faithfulness to the nation of Israel, bringing them out of slavery into the land of the promised land of Canaan. And the Passover lamb was what was slaughtered by the Israelites in Egypt the night before the angel of death came over and the blood of the lamb covering the doorpost and the lintel, would, the angel of death would pass over that house and not kill the firstborn child of that family. And this is why it was such a memorable event because they knew that God had spared them because they had faith in the blood of the Passover lamb that was over their doorposts. And so we see here that this meal was intended to be a reminder of that. In fact, Tom Constable, a professor that I had in seminary who has compiled excellent notes on study, uh, study notes for every book of the Bible, if you go to soniclight.com, and if you need that address again, I will give it to you. You can email me or text me, and I'll give it to you. Soniclight.com is a great resource for studying the Bible. I encourage you to go to that website. But Tom Constable, who has assembled all of those notes, writes, The Passover was celebrated each year in commemoration of the Israelites' deliverance from Egypt. Thus, it was a feast celebrating redemption. The Passover lamb was roasted and eaten after sunset in a family group of at least 10 people. People ate the meal while reclining. 
It included, beside the lamb, unleavened bread and bitter herbs as a reminder of Israel's bitter affliction at the hands of the Egyptians. And then four cups of wine mixed with water were also used for the meal. These four cups are taken from a fourfold promise that God would be with his people and he would redeem his people, taken from Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. Now, Jesus gave two of his disciples instructions, very specific instructions, and we know from the Gospel of Luke that these two disciples were Peter and John. And just like with the, um, the triumphal entry less than a week before from Mark chapter 11, Jesus told his disciples some very specific instructions. Go here. You'll see this person. Go to where they are. Just like he told them to go find the person with the, with the colt or the donkey. Now he tells them to go find a man carrying water. And wherever that man goes, go into that house. And uh, you will go to the owner of the house and, and basically say, as Jesus tells them, um, that the owner will show them a large upper room. And interestingly, the word for upper room could be dining room. It could be inn. It's the same word that's used in Luke 2.10 when um, we are told that Jesus, or sorry, Luke 2.7, we are told that um, at the birth of Jesus, they had to stay in the stable essentially because there was no room at the inn. It's the same word for guest room or dining room that's used here. And this great upper room is where Jesus' disciples would prepare the Passover to have the meal. Um, and this, this shows that Jesus' words were trustworthy. He told his disciples, just like for the triumphal entry, go here, you'll find this. He said the same thing to Peter and John, and they found it exactly as he said. So that's all the preparation. And then we get a very different mood with the prediction. And that's verses 17 through 21. Now, you'll notice, interestingly, as we look at verse 17, and when it was evening. So from the Jewish mindset, the day actually changes because for the Jews, the day began at sundown. So whereas when the disciples went into Jerusalem to look for the place to, to prepare the Passover, that was the 14th day of the month of Nisan. When evening came, this now begins the 15th day of the month of Nisan. Now for us, from our calendar perspective, this is all happening on a Thursday. But for the Jews, this is actually the ending of one day and the beginning of the next day. And so um, this is where Jesus announces to his disciples publicly for them that one of you will betray me. It was a very um, shocking, very arresting statement that they would not have expected. In fact, you see some of their responses. Uh, Is it I? Um, Could it be me? Interestingly, Jesus, when Judas asks him, we find this in John chapter 13, Jesus says to Judas, what you are about to do, go and do it quickly. So we know that Jesus and Judas had a moment where Judas understood that Jesus knew what he was about to do. And so he departs in order to go and betray uh, Jesus. Um, but this betrayal was, was, was shocking. As one scholar named Walter uh, Wessel, it's Walter W. Wessel. I love the three W's there. But Walter W. Wessel writes, To betray a friend after eating a meal with him was and still is regarded as the worst kind of treachery in the Middle East. And I'm reminded of David's words in Psalm 41.9 where he writes, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate bread, has lifted his heel against me. The prediction that Jesus would be um, 
would suffer and would die. This goes back to the Old Testament of Isaiah 53 and other passages. But indeed, we see that this betrayal was one of the most shocking moments that Jesus' disciples could have imagined. A sinking feeling was definitely hanging in the air. So Jesus basically gives Judas a final warning through these words, but prepares his disciples to know that something challenging and traumatic was going to happen. So we then finally move to the the last few verses, verses 22 through 25, where we get the institution, that is the institution of the Lord's Supper from the Gospel of Mark here. And what we find that's interesting about this is that Jesus uh, takes part in four different actions, four separate actions. One, he took, he blessed, he gave. I should say, okay, he took, he blessed, he broke, that's significant, and he gave. So those are the four actions, took, blessed, broke, and gave. If you look back at Mark chapter 6, when Jesus fed the 5,000, those same four actions are taken as he takes, he blesses and gives thanks, he breaks and he gives the the bread to be distributed to the 5,000 people. I find that connection interesting between the feeding of the 5,000 and now the Last Supper, two very important meals in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And he says that the bread represents his body, that is unleavened bread, represents his body, which would be um, not literally broken because we know that none of Jesus' bones were broken, but broken metaphorically on the cross where he would die. His physical body would perish. And then we see the blood that is represented by this wine in this cup that Jesus takes. He says it is the blood of the covenant, that is the new covenant, The new covenant coming from Jeremiah chapter 31, which was a promise that God made to his people that he, uh, his spirit would dwell with his people in a new and a different way. Jeremiah 31, 31 reads, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Indeed, we find that Jesus is inaugurating this new covenant through this communion meal of the last supper that he shares with his disciples, because in the Old Testament times, the blood of an animal was used to ratify uh, or to approve a covenant that was made between God and his people as his people would sacrifice and show their commitment to him. Here, the blood of Jesus Christ was the blood that would ratify and inaugurate the new covenant when Jesus would eventually ascend to be with the Father. The Father would send his spirit upon the disciples in the church And he still gives his spirit today to those of us who trust Christ so that we might walk in newness of life. All of this because of Jesus inaugurating this through his death and then his resurrection. So we find that Jesus does make a promise that he will once again drink of the fruit of the vine in his father's kingdom. So while certainly there was the heaviness of his death and betrayal hanging in the air, There still was the hope of the resurrection on the horizon where Jesus Christ was giving his men a foreshadowing that one day there would be this great heavenly and earthly messianic banquet when Jesus would once again be reigning in his father's kingdom in the future. I'm reminded of uh, a painting that I I have a print of in my office, my office at the chapel. If you've ever been there, you have seen it on the wall. It's by uh, a man named James Seward, and it's entitled, This is My Body. And while many of us are familiar with Leonardo da Vinci's painting of The Last Supper, it may be one of the most famous in history. 
Uh, I tend to like James Seward's um, portrayal of this scene more. I believe it's more historically accurate. It shows Jesus very brightly illuminated with the painting and the lighting in the center, and he's demonstrating his disciples, this is my body, showing them the bread. And in the back of the picture, and I put a, I put a picture of this print in the PowerPoint slide if you want to check it out. You'll notice it's not the best quality. I couldn't find a, a, a superior quality picture um, of this print but I did put it in, in the PowerPoint in the slides anyway, so you can check it out. Um, but you see Judas in the back sneaking out. He's, you can see the look of betrayal on his face as he's sneaking out. And I think this captures this scene very well. It, it captures the tragedy of the betrayal, but yet Jesus illuminated in the light to show that there is the hope of the resurrection which would follow. Um, and so... Uh, we really find that Jesus is uh, spending this significant meal with his friends. And that's because this is the point that I want us to know. Uh, this is really um, significant. Jesus is now the new Passover lamb, guys. The Passover lamb that the Jews would sacrifice once a year. Uh, the Passover lambs that were sacrificed in Egypt and their blood was spread over the lintel and the doorposts of their homes, and they trusted in that blood, the Passover lamb is now Jesus Christ. He is the true Passover lamb. How significant that the night before his sacrifice, Jesus would share this final meal where a Passover lamb was sacrificed as part of the meal. Um, the meaning and the connection is so rich and so deep, and we find in Scripture several references to Jesus as this lamb. John 1, the next day he, that is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 1 Peter 1, Knowing that you were ransomed from uh, the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And then finally, Revelation 5.12, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Jesus Christ is the new Passover lamb who has been sacrificed for us. And we continue to remember his sacrifice each and every time we take communion together as a body and as a church. So as we conclude, and I apologize, I had not intended to talk this long about, uh, about these significant things, but they are significant. Um, but as we conclude, we see and we think about Jesus' great suffering, and we think about his great sacrifice. What might it mean for us as we follow in the footsteps and serve and suffer like our Savior? Certainly, we should continue to celebrate communion and remember what Christ has done, but maybe it's more than that. I think back to Mary. I think back to her example of what she gave up in order to show devotion and love to Jesus Christ. And a number of years ago at our previous church when we lived in Kansas, I preached a message on Mark chapter 14 using Mary as an example. And the title of the, of the message was Wasteful Worship. Wasteful Worship. Because from the disciples, certainly Judas's perspective, Mary was wasting something 
But actually what she was doing is she was worshiping Jesus Christ, showing full devotion to him and giving anything and everything. She gave something that cost at least a year's salary. She gave something that might have been, as some have suspected, a very expensive family heirloom that might have not even had a price tag because it was so valuable. She gave of that in order so that she might show devotion to Christ. And I began to wonder, what about us? What what am I sacrificing? What are you sacrificing for Jesus Christ? Am I or are we willing to sacrifice our financial resources in such a way to help others who are in need, especially at this time? Are we willing to give of our time and our thoughtfulness and reaching out to someone? We might not be able to visit them because of our current health situation, but could we reach out and communicate to them? And are we willing even to sacrifice by sharing the love of Jesus Christ with those who don't know him? Are we willing to care for those who need care the most at this time? I just want to kind of leave us with this thought that if Jesus was willing to give up everything and sacrifice himself for us, What are we willing to give up and sacrifice for Jesus Christ? Guys, may we be willing to serve and suffer like our Savior. That's been our lesson from Mark chapter 14. I've learned a lot in studying this passage over uh, these past week or so as Jesus has shared his final Passover meal with his disciples. I hope you've learned as well along with me. Next week, we'll be continuing in the Gospel of Mark chapter 14. In the meantime, remember that Mark shows us how to serve and suffer like our Savior. And my prayer, guys, is heading into this weekend and into this next week. We will be thoughtful and considering ways that we can, like Mary, sacrifice and give back to Jesus because of all that he has sacrificed and given for us. God bless. Have a great week.